Well, good day, everyone. Uh, if we've not met, I'm Joe Wiltshire. I'm the senior minister here at St. Barnabas, and I'm thrilled to be able to uh, kick us off on our journey through Mark's Gospel, which we're studying not just for this term, but for the next six months or so, uh, right through winter, as we come to terms with who, who Jesus is, what he was on about, uh, and what it means to know him and follow him as his disciple. Uh, so why don't I pray as we, we get into Mark's Gospel and just this introductory section uh, this morning. Father, we thank you that we can be together as a church family, uh, whether we've come as regular members and believers, whether we've come with questions, whether we've come as sceptics and doubters. Father, we pray that as we engage with uh, the, the Jesus of reality, uh, the Jesus of history, that you will blow our minds. Please open our hearts to understand what the truth is and what it means that he is the king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, maybe you'd agree, uh, words have power. Well, at least the right word at the right moment has tremendous power. Uh, the words of a parent, uh, the words of a friend, the words of a lover, uh, they can have a life, lifelong impact on you for, for good or for real, right? A bad word from a parent might destroy you for life. One, one bad word could wreck a friendship for life. Uh, on the other hand, two small words could forge a new family. What are the two words? I will, or I do if it's in the movies. Uh, or marry me if it's the proposal. There you go. <laughs> That starts a whole new family, a whole new way of relating, a whole new thing. And, and it's words that start it all. But on a much grander scale, there are certain great moments in time or in history where, where a word or a speech has become profound, even leading to some of the, the major turning points in history. Think how England was galvanised after Churchill's speech in the House of Commons. Uh, you might be familiar with we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I mean, that's, there's a speech to get you going. And, and uh, England were a pretty low ebb when that happened. Uh, the, at the Battle of Britain, uh, they faked it, how many aircraft they actually had left. They put every wreck out. They, had one, they got down to one working aircraft at one point. And if Germany had just pushed a little bit harder, who knows what would have happened. But they were, the words of power brought the nation together. Or think of Martin Luther King Jr., who inspired millions and transformed America when he announced in Washington, I have a dream. I mean, there's words of power to get people up and working together. There are great moments that make great speakers. Words about the time, words for the time, words which alter the trajectory of things to come. Now, some of you looking around this group might remember 1972. Uh, and depending on your point of view, this country had either endured or enjoyed uh, 23 straight years of Liberal government under Sir Robert Menzies. And then this man came along, Mr Whitlam, Gough Whitlam, and he was determined to bring about change to Australia and his campaign slogan was, it's time, it's time. And as I've been led to understand, I wasn't alive at the time, I was born in 73. Uh, it, it was, poli I don't think that was a result of Gough Whitlam coming. 
I'd have to go and ask. Anyway, <laughs> my parents are visiting this afternoon. Anyway, <laughs> uh, as I've been led to believe, it, it, was a, it was politicking like we've never had it before. Instead of the campaign consisting uh, of, of uh, serious men in suits standing in town hall and debating, and that was the sum total of campaigning, it was the birth of the political slogan. And so everywhere he went, he would say, it's time. He had T-shirts made. Uh, there, there was a pop... Uh, song written for him. Uh, it's time for loving. It's time for caring. It's time to move. Yes, it's time. I watched it on YouTube last night. Um, uh, it hasn't dated well. <laughs> Unlike me, I dated very well. Anyway, that's, 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 but, but you think about the slogan, okay, it's, it's time, it's time for loving, it's time for caring, it's time. Uh, it captures something, but when you think about it, it when is it not a time for loving? When is it not a time for caring? But that feeling of 23 years of one-sided government, it, it was time. And, and the landslide happened in the election of 1972, a massive swing, and that brought about massive changes. Now, of course, that was all reversed in 1975, just a couple of years later. But when Jesus burst onto the scene 2,000 or so years ago, his message was it's time. I think Gough Whitlam stole it from Jesus. Uh, we read it there in verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, and, and I think that was the topic sentence of his preaching, his campaign slogan, if you like, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. He didn't just say this once, he said that in every village and town that he went to uh, in the early uh, time of his ministry. And his words were of such moment, they were of such import that they didn't just change the national makeup of Israel for the next little while. Here we are, 2,000 years later, studying them together. And not just these, but as, as it fills it out over the rest of the gospel over these next few months. And if we want to come to terms with Christianity and what it's all about, then we've got to come to terms with Jesus. And if we want to come to terms with Jesus, we've got to come to terms with his message, his his gospel, if you like, which gospel means good news, good news. And that's what he'd come to announce, this good news. The time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And to his hearers at the time, the people in the countryside of Israel, it wasn't just 23 years under another political party, it had been hundreds of years of foreign rule uh, and occupation that they'd faced by, by massive forces a huge period of time just under Roman rule for the last hundred or so years before this. But uh, they were conquered and ruled before that by the Greeks and before that by the Persians and before that by the Babylonians. In fact, for nearly 600 years, Israel had been waiting, waiting for the time which the prophets of old had promised, a time of freedom, freedom from oppression, freedom from their slavery, and Jesus came into the countryside in a moment of political fervour and he announced, it's time. Now, the first question I want to ask this morning is, how did he know that it was time? Why was it the time? What triggered off this announcement which Jesus was going from village to village to proclaim in Galilee, which is kind of like Israel's equivalent of Queensland, you know, the weird country cousins who... We know they're there, we accept they're Australians, kind of. But anyway, but that, that's where he was, up in Galilee, kind of the north of Israel. 
How did he know that the time had come? Well, Mark tells us what the trigger was, what got him out. It was the arrival and the arrest of another man, John the Baptist. And so it's kind of a strange introduction to this gospel, uh, this this biography of Jesus. He says in the first sentence, there's a book about Jesus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But what he does is take us not to Jesus, but to this other man, John the Baptist, this very odd man uh, in lots of ways. Now, John the Baptist, if you're not familiar with him, was was a preacher of sorts, a preacher who, as it had turned out, had become nationally famous. He was a man with a message. He didn't come with a guitar and a folk band and have T-shirts or a backing group or a TV camera, but still thousands flocked to hear this man speak. They flocked out into the wilderness, into the countryside, into the desert places of Israel to hear him. And he also declared that it was the time coming and he was calling upon the nation to repent. That is to stop what they were doing and to turn back and to turn back and acknowledge God again. And and he was completely fearless, uh, condemning sin wherever he saw it. He he spoke without fear or favour to to the common man. He said, you've got to uh, get rid of the sin in your life. If you're stealing, stop stealing. Uh, He spoke against the authorities, against the religious authorities, and and he uh, pronounced condemnation on them. He spoke against the civic leaders and said, you are stealing from the people, you must stop, you must repent. And even the king of the time, King Herod, uh, he spoke against him for his evil, for his adultery. Um, Now, the authorities don't particularly like it when people come out in public declaring that the whole nation's going wrong, and guess whose fault it is? It's your fault. (laughs) Very hard to win the influence of those in power when you're saying the whole nation's gone down the gurgler and you're the ones making a right mess of it. And so at the point where his popularity was reaching national levels of interest, the authorities had him picked up and put in prison and just a little while after this, uh, he was going to be executed. Now, the New Testament's not the only record that we have of John the Baptist. Uh, there was a Jewish historian just a bit later than this, a guy called Josephus, who was an interesting character himself. He wrote a history of the Jews uh, and he wrote it for the sake of the Romans who were the conquerors because uh, he wanted to get in the good side. He was kind of a traitor to his people. But he also wanted to apologise to his Jewish friends because he changed sides and betrayed them. And so he wrote this kind of potted history of the Jews called the Jewish Antiquities. And, and it's really interesting because it goes right back from creation, from Adam and Eve, right up to the last thing that happened uh, in Josephus' life, uh, some battles that were going on. But in this history of the Jews, he's got a prominent section on John the Baptist. So he's a man of such national importance in the history of Israel, even if you didn't believe him and follow him and turn to Jesus, who John was pointing to, that, that he stands out in Jewish history, even to the people around just after this. And I want to point that out because we need to know we're not dealing with myths here. We're not dealing with a fantasy land or imaginary people and places when we're talking about Jesus and John the Baptist and people like that. These people are real people who really said and did these things. For us on the other side of the world, thousands of years later, it all sounds like maybe some early version of Lord of the Rings. 
uh, or the Hobbit or something like that. It's kind of, is it legend? Is it fantasy? What, what is it? And, and I meet people regularly who haven't considered that this, this is real history. Uh, I read them quite regularly. Just a few weeks ago, uh, just after Easter, I went off to play my normal Thursday night soccer game in town and the admin guy who signs us in, Dave's his name, uh, uh, he had just discovered the week before from someone else that I was a minister. He said, oh man, we have people all kinds of weird occupations come here to play soccer. Um, uh, you know, he obviously wasn't, you know, impressed by my soccer ability. But anyway, <laughs> and he said to me, you're a minister. You, see, you had Easter last week. Um, so the resurrection, it's kind of like zombie Jesus, right? Uh, is Jesus a, you know, a zombie <laughs> kind of thing? And he said, I, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons and there was this creature called a lich. Uh, is Jesus like a lich king? They had kind of defeat death and kind of woo, power and yeah, magic. And, but but he, he said, I, I called Jesus zombie Jesus to all my friends. <laughs> but he'd never read the Bible for himself. He just heard stories as a kid and assumed it was this great adventure story. But no, Josephus tells us that John appeared and, and John preached for repentance, just like the Bible says. Uh, here's an excerpt from Jewish Antiquities. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army in some battle later came from God as a just punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod had killed this good man who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness to one another, towards one another and piety towards God. And then he describes for a, a, a bit um, how John went about baptizing, what the significance of that meant, you know, the water. But then he says, Now many people came in crowds to hear John, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the masses, might put them under his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything that he should advise. He thought it best to put him to death. In this way, he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of his sin when it would be too late. Accordingly, John was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I already mentioned, and was put to death. There you go, John the Baptist. Big figure in Jewish history. But so the Bible is dealing with matters of history, of reality. John was a well-known, widely known, nationally known figure. And he caused enough trouble for the government to put him in prison and eventually execute him. That doesn't happen if all you're doing is leaning over the kitchen table, whispering to your wife, I think the government sucks. (laughs) But it's not just that here was this man, John, speaking such strong words against the nation and calling them in such strong ways to repent that triggered Jesus into his preaching campaign. It was more than that because John came fulfilling what was expected from the Old Testament. Prophecies made hundreds of years before, such as Isaiah chapter 40, Malachi chapter 3 and 4. And Mark points that out for us. Because he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now that's actually a quote, surprisingly enough, not from Isaiah, but from Malachi chapter 3. It's kind of weird, but Malachi is kind of a commentary on Isaiah. Uh, Some years after Isaiah reiterating Isaiah's message. But then he adds, he's also a voice of one calling in the desert, 
prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And that is a quote from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40. And that is to say, hundreds of years before this moment in time, the prophets were speaking about this man who would come, John the Baptist, as it turned out, and what his coming would mean. Now, to put the time kind of in scale in our minds, Malachi was going four or five hundred years before. Where, where does 500 years take us back to? Well, kind of. It takes us back before modern Australia, right? Way before First Fleets and things like that. Takes, who, who's 500 years ago? Who was in the uh, early 1500s? What's the name? Anyone know? Luther, yeah, early 1500s. Uh, King Henry VIII divorcing his wife. That kind of period of time we're talking about was the last prophet that God had spent, the prophet Malachi. He was the last in a great long line of prophets, all who said very similar things. Uh, It's that far back before uh, John came when Malachi was saying a prophet is coming, a prophet who will prepare the way for God to arrive. A prophet who is going to announce a new age coming. And then you think back 800 years or so. 800 years, where does that take us back to? The 1200s? What was happening in the 1200s? Yeah. Uh, not Richard Wilkins, no. That was, uh, that was the 1980s. Uh, 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 yeah, the Crusades. Crusades or uh, the Fourth Lateran Council. Is that Thomas Aquinas and... Around then, there you go, for the, uh, the theological scholars. Uh, we're talking Thomas Aquinas. But the Crusades, I mean, that's a long time ago, right? That's the kind of time back when Isaiah was saying the same thing, that, that amount of time before John the Baptist arrived, that a time is coming when a messenger, a prophet will come to prepare the path for God's arrival. And he'll say in the desert, make his path straight, make God's path straight, Prepare a road for God is coming. And then John the Baptist comes after these years of silence and and notice how he's described. Because Mark goes out of his way to describe his outfit and his diet. Now kind of just weird. I mean, Jesus doesn't even get his outfit mentioned, you know. We just know he had a sash from all our kids' stories. But um, but you see it in verse six. John came wearing clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt tied around his waist. Now, Mark's mentioning that not because this is the latest in high fashion and that's what every Christian will be wearing in the future, uh, nor because he's getting into the camel clothing industry and trying to make a sale, because it was the kind of outfit that Elijah the prophet himself had worn a thousand years or so beforehand. We're talking now the ten hundred, you know, the, uh, the thousands you know, we're talking about the Battle of Hastings and the Norman invasion of England, that kind of period of time ago. This prophet Elijah had turned up. Which matters because, as Malachi goes on to say, that the prophet who is coming in the last day to announce God's arrival will be Elijah, or just like Elijah. Another prophet from many years ago who stood against the authorities and who called the nation of Israel to repent even attacked the king for his personal moral failures. And John turns up, um, 
dressed exactly like Elijah. Uh, and basically, he's scavenging food from the land, just like Elijah did, you know, the locusts and wild honey. Uh, Elijah was out in the wilderness uh, getting fed by the crows. And, and he's preaching the same message of condemnation and calling for national repentance, just like Elijah did a thousand years beforehand. And so he is the one who has come, the one that the prophets have been speaking about, the one who is going to announce the coming of God. And so as John departs from the scene because he's arrested by Herod, Jesus comes out in full force and makes his announcement, the time has now come. But actually he's saying more than just that the time has come, literally he says, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. It hasn't just come. That which was prophesied before now has been fulfilled. And that is, the Bible has this sense that the history of the world is under the control of God. That everything's working out according to the plan of God. And that God had this moment worked out. And what was happening at the time was the fulfillment of all his plans and all his promises. This is what God has been planning for and preparing for all along. And this is what the nation of God, Israel, was supposed to be waiting for, watching for, yearning for, longing for. God to arrive, his kingdom to come in. And why? Why? What was supposed to be what was it supposed to be like at his coming? What, what did this moment of fulfillment usher in? Well, nothing short of the kingdom of God. The kingdom where God would reign. The kingdom when God would give his king permanently. The, the time when justice would be given to God's people under oppression. A time when some of the others prophets had spoken you know, of, of the spirit being poured into the hearts of people so that they would, they would want to obey God's law and be moved to obey God's law as Ezekiel 36 promises and Ezekiel 37 speaks of. At a time when Jeremiah in chapter 31 in his prophecy said there would be a kingdom of, of forgiveness. And, and so the kingdom is coming, a kingdom that the prophets have been talking about not just for 500 years as Malachi did, not just for 800 years as Isaiah did, but for over a thousand years. That's the period the prophets have been saying that this day, this kingdom coming would happen. And after 500 years of silence of no prophets, God has come to take the history by the throat. And that's Jesus' message. Chapter 1, verse 15. The topic sentence of his preaching, the heart of his good news. The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. Now that begs the question, which kingdom? What kind of kingdom? What's it going to be like? Well, it's not just another human kingdom. It's, it's not another Babylon. It's not another Persia. It's not another Greece. It's not another Rome. But neither is it going to be another kingdom of Israel though they don't know it yet. And, and that confusion plays out right through Mark's biographies of Jesus. People are totally puzzled. They're saying, you're the king and we're meant to get this freedom from slavery, but, but how come you're not fighting the Romans? It, it's the kingdom of God, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom not of earthly power with a new taxation system, 
a new you know, uh, tax brackets for you to fit into and work out how much you owe this year. It's not, a, it's not an earthly kingdom with an education policy. It's, it's a kingdom not with national boundaries, a kingdom not ruled by a mortal who needs replacing every three years in an election or who might get swept out in a double disillusion election <laughs> or a regency that lasts 50 years or 66 years, as we found out last night at the trivia quiz, that the Queen has been in power. It's a kingdom not with geographical borders or, uh, or a border to defend. It's a kingdom whose values and principles and ways of operating are not based on greed or selfishness or power as ours are. In fact, it's a kingdom that, that is completely foreign to what this world imagines. It might even be foreign to us. This kingdom Jesus proclaims it's time for is entirely wonderfully different and and he says it's open to all. It's open for you and it's open for me to be a part of where, where God reigns, where God has the victory, where God brings justice and mercy and God rules. The kingdom of God is really about God's rule in human lives. But the obvious question then is which king? Because all these prophets have been saying that it's going to be God who the messenger will announce the arrival of. That God himself is coming. He, God will be the king of his kingdom. And this messenger is preparing the way for, for God's arrival, saying, make straight God's path. But, it, but if you think back in the Bible, you see all kinds of places where God also says that the king of this kingdom is going to be a person. Uh, from the very beginning, God created humanity to rule. You know, Adam and Eve were, were given power to rule over the earth. Uh, and Abraham, he's told that one of his descendants is going to rule. But then later, it's not just uh, from the offspring of Abraham. The end of the book of Genesis, we're told that the ruler is going to come from, from the tribe of Judah. And then we're told sometime later in 2 Samuel 7 that it's going to be someone in King David's line. I mean, David was in the line of Judah, who was a descendant of Abraham, who was, you know, everyone's part of Adam's family. And so over and over again, these same prophecies of the Old Testament, the king is given a title, this human title, this human is going to come. In Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. In Greek, Messiah translates into Christ. In English, it's translated as the anointed one. Uh, That's the title of the king who God says is going to rule his kingdom, Messiah, Christ, anointed one. Now, we're very strong on the idea that that you know a king or a queen by by what? They they wear uh, a crown, right? Um, In Israel, there were crowns, but the real coronation happened when the king was anointed with oil anointed by God's prophet as a sign of God's spirit being with you and and guiding your rule. Uh, Our queen, Queen Elizabeth, was anointed at her coronation. Uh, There's black and white footage on YouTube if you want to see her coronation, but at the very moment that she was anointed, they they don't film it because it it was too sacred a moment to be captured on film. You might be able to find photographs, But she was anointed and the commentator uh, explains what's happening in the bit you're missing. 
that the Archbishop of Can- Canterbury is coming up to dab on her forehead the oil to anoint her as the queen. I think it'd be more dramatic if they tipped the whole thing of uh, olive oil or mobile over her head, but anyway, probably wouldn't go down too well on camera. But anyway, but it all goes back to the Old Testament, to the anointing of the oil of the kings of Israel as the sign that the Holy Spirit was going to be with them. It was the sign of being the king. And so the word anointed, which is the Hebrew word Messiah and Greek Christ, they're all the same word, just translated into different languages. And so when you see Christ, you know it's Messiah. You mean the anointed one. You mean the king. But the king of Israel was actually going to be called something else as well. He would also be called the son of God. And so that's what this book, this gospel is about. Verse 1, the opening of the book, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This book, Mark, is the declaration of Jesus' kingship. That's what this is about. You got friends you've been praying for, family, neighbours, This would be a great thing to bring him along to over the next few months as we work through. Is Jesus really this king? But notice Mark himself is not the only one who's announcing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's another voice who makes the same announcement. Uh, The voice from heaven which comes at Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. And and the whole thing is a bit bizarre and, and kind of, well, I think it's astonishing. First of all, it's astonishing because of the way that it happened. See, John's been out in the wilderness, John the Baptist. Thousands have been flocking to hear him cry denouncement on the nation and call them to repentance and and saying, woe to all these leaders. Uh, And he's been baptising people, people who want to make a change, who want to turn back to God and and start again. And and Jesus has turned up as just kind of one of the crowd and... Uh, you read in the other biographies, John goes, uh, I, I, he sees Jesus, not sure whether he should baptise him or not, but anyway, Jesus convinces him. And so John dunks Jesus under the water. So far, so good, nothing unusual about that. But I bet John got the shock of his life when Jesus came up out of the water. And what happened? Verse 9. As Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, I think that's astonishing in and of itself. Imagine being there in the crowds and hearing these words booming out and seeing this dove-like thing, whatever it looked like, come down and land on Jesus That'd be pretty freaky. But even more astonishing that is the words themselves. What what this voice from heaven is declaring. I mean, you think about it. Because again, these are references from the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, God is quoting himself from two different places. The first part of the phrase, you are my son, comes from psalm 2 we read it before Uh, psalm 2 written by king david a thousand years beforehand 
Sometimes the royal psalm from, from the book of Psalms. Effectively, it was kind of like the national anthem, or, more, or kind of like rule Britannia or something like that, you know, this national fervour, you know, God save the Queen kind of song. Effectively, you know, it was the national anthem. And, and in that, and in Psalm 2, this song, God says to his king, don't worry about all these nations who are going to rise up against, against us because I've got you. You're my king. He says, you're my beloved son. Ask of me and I'm going to give all the nations of this world as your inheritance and you are going to rule over them. You're going to conquer and you are going to rule the entire world. And then the psalm writer turns to the nations and says to them, so you better stop your rebellion, turn back and kiss the son lest he come and destroy you. And so Psalm 2 is really identifying the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, with this title, the Son, the Son of God. And so the Son of God might speak of Jesus' divinity, but it's, but it's also a title of kingship, and, and the kings of Israel were known as the Son of God. And so here is this voice booming out from heaven, it's God's own declaration that Jesus is this king, the king he has promised to send. But then perhaps even more astonishing is the second half of what the voice says. With you, I am well pleased. And that's astonishing because that's a quote not from the Psalms, but from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42 is the first of a series of other songs which, which reach their climax in Psalm 53, which are all about this strange figure, this human figure, who, who is a, a great unnamed servant. A, a servant who's going to suffer greatly. In fact, everyone's going to hate his guts. They're going to despise him and they're rejecting him. A servant who's coming to serve God, but he's also coming to serve humanity, who in the end he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. Maybe you're familiar with some of it from Easter, Easter things or from Colin Buchanan songs. You know, he, uh, Isaiah, the, the last song in the series goes, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. Yeah. And the Lord has laid on him. Seeing. You can tell who the parents are. <laughs> That's Colin Buchanan from Play School. Anyway. And, and it's a fun song, but it's a really serious message. Everyone has walked away from God. We like sheep have gone astray. We've gone our own way. But what the Lord is going to do, what God is going to do, is lay on this servant who is going to die, despised and rejected, the sin of everyone. Past, present, future. And he will die, he will be crushed, not for his own sins, but for the sins of humanity. And the opening reference to this suffering servant is Isaiah 42 verse 1 where God says you are my servant with whom I am well pleased and what is astonishing is that God in this booming voice forces us to put these two things together these two people together to put together the king the ruler the messiah who's going to rule over the nations and be the king of kings and the lord of lords who's going to rule the universe and conquer everyone and put him together with the suffering servant who is going to be despised and rejected and finally killed, executed as a criminal. 
You would think that those two things couldn't possibly hang together. No one had ever thought of putting those two figures from the Old Testament together. Not one person had ever considered that they were going to be one and the same person. The king coming to rule all nations eternally, the suffering servant coming in order to be killed. I don't know much about Prince Charles, never met the man. But I presume that at his coronation, should it happen, he's not expecting to be executed. No one had ever put these two figures together until the voice of God does a booming out from heaven as he speaks to Jesus, as the heavens open, as the Holy Spirit descends on this man. You are the King. You are the Christ, my beloved Son. You are the suffering servant who is going to die for the sins of the world. With you, I am well pleased. It was an astonishing royal announcement and that's what set the scene for Jesus to explode onto the public stage and announce the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Of course it's at hand because the king of the kingdom has arrived. I am that king. Mark's told us who we're dealing with in Jesus in his opening sentence. God has told us who we're dealing with in his voice from heaven. And if it's true that Jesus is this king and this servant, it demands a response. Something's got to change. What's the response? Well, repent and believe the good news. Now, repentance is a bit of a funny thing. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for yourself. Yeah, all kinds of people live with regrets and live with guilt feelings. Sometimes justly, sometimes they're mistaken about themselves. But what repent means is to change your mind and therefore to change your ways. In this case, I've been living without God being in charge of my life. I've been doing my own thing, ignoring him, only acknowledging him when it suits me. You know, maybe praying to him when I really have something that I need help with. But I can't do that any longer. I'm going to come back to him. I'm going to let him take charge. Let Jesus be the king that he really is. I'm going to kiss the son lest he be angry with me. It's about swearing fealty to Jesus, this king of kings. That's what Jesus means by repentance. Repent and believe the good news. The good news that there can be life and forgiveness and joy and a complete fresh start with God no matter what's in the past where everything can be wiped clean because Jesus is the suffering servant the one who Mark is going to show us over these next few months, who died on the cross as a ransom for us, to buy us back. The one who suffered not for his own shortcomings and failures and sins, not for his own rebellion against God, but he suffered for ours. The one who lives and reigns now as the king because death didn't hold him down. The gospel ends with his resurrection to life. The one whose kingdom is far greater than any earthly kingdom whose kingdom will never end. This is the Jesus of history. This is the Jesus that we've got to come to terms with. Tremendous mercy, astonishing love and power, amazing grace. Father, we thank you for this record of history, your word to us about your son. We thank you that Jesus is both the king and the saviour. Help us to turn to him, 
if there are things we are fighting with you on in our life, help us to turn away from them and to put to death. Help us to apologize to you and come back. Father, we pray that we might live lives that are uh, honoring to you and worthy of you as our king. But Father, thank you also that he was the suffering servant who's paid for our sin, who's brought us forgiveness and cleansing and life. Father, please have mercy on us. Help us to walk each day closer and closer with you. Help us to know your love, your presence, but also this king who we live for, the one who is worthy of all glory and praise, Jesus Christ. Amen.